Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. Kind of sounds like I'm selling stereo equipment when I start off that introduction, doesn't it? Or furniture, maybe fur coats. Come on down to the Wolfman. Tell him the Wolfman sent you. I don't know. Was that mattresses or fur coats in Memphis in the early 90s? I can't remember. That's where I went to college, in Memphis. Hey, I've got a great episode for you today. The Wolfman's not here, but a very, very, very smart gentleman named Richard Robb will be discussing with us his new book, Willful, How We Choose What We Do. Richard teaches economics at Columbia University. He's also a hedge fund guy, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Hey, so last week's episode was fun, huh? That was the discussion my wife and I had about our finances. And I got more feedback from this episode than from any other episode so far. Today's episode, by the way, is number 40, four zero, folks. We've been at this almost a full year, coming up on a year. We'll be a full year, not that long into 2020. But of all the episodes we've done, nothing elicited comments to me on Facebook and an email quite like this conversation. Some of the comments range from that was bold. Boy, is your wife patient and she has a lovely voice. Dozens of people, did I say dozens? Thousands of people emailed me with feedback on what a cool woman my wife was and how she must be a patient angel to be married to my dumb ass. And yeah, that's kind of true. I'm lucky. I, I'm totally lucky. She's very patient with me. I'm not bad. I'm not, like she said, 85% of the time I'm great and I'm working on the other 15%. So if you haven't checked out that conversation and you want to uh, eavesdrop on me talking about money with my wife, talking about how we talk about money with my wife, check out last week's episode with Stacy Ollinger, Stacy Seidel's Ollinger. Hey folks, just this week, we got put on Pandora. Pandora. Hey, there's the dog. The dog is snoring in the background. I hope you can uh, hope you can hear that and you find that to be hilarious because it annoys the crap out of me. We got put on Pandora, so we are now available on Pandora. They don't accept everybody, and I'm happy to to be a part of their fine platform. That's a lot of peas for Mike Carano to edit out my puh, popping peas. Anyway, we're on Pandora. So if you use Pandora, add us there. Crazy money on Pandora. I want to share with you all some statistics statistics, audience statistics that I have picked up, not from Pandora because we haven't been running there for long enough to have deep insights into the show yet, but on Spotify, Spotify's got this cool tool where I can see the audience that listens to the show on Spotify. I'm also going to talk a little bit about Apple, about uh, the Apple podcast analytics. So do you think this show is more male or female? Do you think it has more male or female listeners? I'm going to give you a second to think about it. Cue the Jeopardy music. All right. Now, allowing for the fact that Spotify's platform might skew more male, listeners on Spotify are 64% male, 32% female, 3% non-specified, and under 1% non-binary. So clearly, 2x the number of listeners are male than female. I kind of thought that it was more female. That could be just because people listen on Spotify are dudes but I don't know. So I thought that was interesting. All right, let's talk about age. This is a demographic deep dive. This is free, by the way. You get a free analysis of the crazy money audience. What percent of our audience do you think is the coveted 45 to 59-year-old demographic? I'll give you a hint. It's over a third. Oh, no. What a bunch of old people. People with money, though, if an advertiser wanted to try to target people with money that take trips and buy cars and drink expensive wine, there you go. 45 to 59-year-old, 36%, under 1% for 60 to 150 years old. 150 years old. That seems that seems high. Maybe they could have just done 60 to 120. I don't know. 2% unknown. And then it's kind of a waterfall to the left. 29% are 35 to 44 are 28 to 34, 12% 23 to 27. Come on, postgrads. At least three or four of my nieces fit into that 23 to 27-year-old category. Listen, ladies, share it with your friends. Nothing single, young, Gen Yers love than a 50-year-old ranting about money. And then 4% of the audience is 18 to 22. Here's something. Top artists that fans of crazy money listen to. (laughs) Who do you think is number one? Again, remember that these will, to some degree, echo the kinds of artists that are most popular on the platform, right? So it doesn't necessarily 
mean that there's some huge correlation, but it is interesting. Number one artists they're listening to, Kanye West. That's right. If you love crazy money, you love Yeezy. There you go. Wow. That says something. Next is Post Malone. And wow, I don't even know who that is. Ed Sheeran. There you go. He's number three. T, Taylor Swift is number four. And Ariana Grande, numero cinco. Interesting. Wow. This is good stuff, Spotify. I appreciate you uh, sharing these kinds of details. All right. Country. Let's talk about country. And then we're going to wrap this up because I know you want to hear actual smart people talk. And I've got one of the smartest people you'll ever meet as a guest on the show this week. Guy's ridiculously brilliant. I don't know why he was interested in talking to me. But anyway, we had a good conversation. Number one country after the good old United States of America. You'd think it'd be Canada and you'd be wrong. Australia. Again, Spotify is a very international type platform. So this might just be that Spotify has, has better penetration in Australia than it does in Canada. But Canada comes in, comes in third well behind Australia, our friends in the United Kingdom, well, okay, English-speaking countries, are next. And then Germany, Netherlands, New Zealand, Ireland, Philippines, Finland, Norway. Where's Sweden, where Spotify's from? Number 12, where's Denmark, where I have friends that are supposed to listen to this show, especially the ones about Huga? They are number 24. What? You better be listening to it on iTunes. Jordan, Austria, Portugal, Czechia? Chechia. What is that? It's got to be the Czech Republic. Italy, Turkey, and Poland comes in number 33 with a sparse number of one streams. My guess is somebody in Poland accidentally opened it up. Hey, that was fun. That was a fun deep dive on uh, Spotify's demographic insights into the Crazy Money podcast audience. Hey, here's some interesting things from iTunes. The episodes that you all are listening all the way through the most include Ryan Holiday, Holiday. I don't know why I just said that like I'm from Canada. Ryan Holiday, who's from Texas. He is almost the top. Brad Klontz, financial psychologist of billionaires, episode 28. Very high completion rate. That was good. As was Adam Carolla. Yeah. Comedian and radio legend. And Bill Browder, the author of Red Notice from back in May. Wow. He's a lot of people digging Bill Browder. If you haven't read that book, Red Notice, by the way, read it. It will blow your mind. It is a super compelling read, and it is all about money, work, careers, risk, and then the startlingly scary situation over in Russia right now. Really, really good book. Highly recommend. And of course, our friend Sir Angus Deaton was up there in terms of completion rates. So awesome. All right, let's talk about Richard Robb. Oh, hey, by the way, after this episode, I have a, a mini interview with my friend Eric Porras from New York City. He is an old friend from the advertising world, and he has just started a new company called Meeting Science, Meeting Science, that aims to improve the quality and effectiveness of your meetings at your workplace, to say nothing of the enjoyability and keeping people from asking dumb questions. So stay tuned after the interview with Richard Robb to hear my buddy, Eric Porras. All right, Richard Robb, ladies and gentlemen, our guest today is the author of a new book called Willful, How We Choose What We Do, in which he explores frameworks for decision-making that run counter, or they add an element to the framework of neoclassical economics. And <laughs> if there's anything you were hoping to hear from about today, it's neoclassical economics. But this guy is ridiculously smart. He's an economics professor at Columbia University, and his other job yes, he has two full-time jobs, is CEO of Christofferson Robin Company, which of course is Chris Christofferson's hedge fund. <laughs> no wonder so few people in their 20s listen to this show. He's the CEO of Christofferson Robin Company, a New York and London-based investment management firm. Dr. Rob holds a BA from Duke University and a PhD in economics from the University of Chicago. His framework is pretty interesting and includes a new element called for itself decision-making. And I think it's interesting because if you believe yourself to be a rational person, maybe considering some of the decisions you've made in your life, uh, maybe for itself gives you the opportunity to let yourself off the hook of your rationality. Sometimes we just do things because we want to do them and that's all right. Let's just hope they all lead to more happiness. This is Richard Robb. There's one more element I think needs to go into our taxonomy. This would be represented by the example of a woman who sees her husband fall into the river, and she's trying to decide whether to jump. 
does the woman say, what is the present value of services and benefits I expect to get from my husband, including companionship and income and the like? Okay, calculate that. Multiply that by the chance that she's going to save him, minus the chance he'll save himself without her help. And then from that, deduct the probability she'll drown, multiplied by the value she attributes to her own life. That's a lot of math to do in a short yeah, period of time. People don't do math in short time when the when the stakes are high, but I don't think that's the way she does it. I think that, to use the uh, phrase of the philosopher Bernard Williams, anything more than this is her husband who she loves would be one thought too many. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Richard Robb, welcome to Crazy Money. Great to be here. You're the author of a new book called Willful, How We Choose What We Do. Why is it important to understand how we make decisions and what new light do you shed on that process? Understanding how we make decisions and our motivations for those decisions can help us make better ones and it can help us be more at ease with the decisions that we already make. My thrust in this book is to take as my starting point rational choice, which is the basis of economic theory, so-called neoclassical economics, which I've studied and which I teach, which assumes that we have preferences. We can compare different choices, different outcomes. We know which one we like better, and we can rank them all. And we pick the one that we like the best, given the resources and the information that we have at hand. There's another theory that has become popular in the last 30 or 40 years that relies on behavioral economics. It assumes that we make mistakes when we try to make the best choice, that we might overvalue things that we already own. We might be overconfident in our abilities. We might uh, react to the way a problem is framed when it's presented to us and choose differently based on the first number that we hear. That, that's, that sort of thing is a catalog of about 200 of them. Those are the biases. The biases, yeah. That we're subject to, even though we believe we're acting rationally. Right. And we may, you know, we may fall into mental shortcuts. Some people argue that they're left over from the ancestral environment that don't always serve us in the modern world. I'm not comfortable with that as the whole story uh, for human behavior. I think it's part of the story. I'm not a heretic. <laughs> I... Man, I thought we were going to get get no, married no, no, because it would just—it's uh, not defensible. It's a powerful way to understand all kinds of things, and uh, to turn our back on that would be missing out on a, an important source of understanding. But I—I uh, I do argue that there's more to it. That sometimes we make decisions that are just because they justify themselves. We don't make them because they're better than some other decision we might make, but we want to do as we like. So we're not being rational. We're not being irrational. We don't need to whip ourselves into shape and conform to the model that economists might try to impose on us, but just accept that there's a realm that can't be shoehorned into the uh, rational or behavioral bias world. And you call these just because decisions? I call them for itself, yeah. Uh, And the other, you know, I maintain that the bias and the rational are not two different two different realms, but they're really the same one. They're the type of decisions where we're setting out for a purpose, we're behaving purposefully. We know the kinds of things that we want, and we try to pick the best one to gratify our desires. And we might we're behaving robotically, and maybe we're good robots, but maybe we're badly programmed robots. But either way, we have this this whole, if I can use a bit of jargon, utility function that we're, we're trying to maximize. So I call that the purposeful realm. The other part is the for itself realm that just doesn't fit. And if we accept that life is twofold, or say the name of part one of the book, that life is a mixed drink, then for me, things click into place. It's useful in business and finance, which are also my areas in addition to teaching economics, but in understanding how we interact with other people, 
how we connect to our own beliefs or our commitment to those beliefs. I think there are a number of different areas where we're acting willfully. It sounds to me that you came to this over time, that for many years or decades of your lives, you considered yourself to be a pure rationalist, but you found in elements of your life that you were making decisions that didn't conform to that framework. Did it evolve over time for you? It sure did. It evolved over time, and there were a couple of epiphany moments that I remember and that I described. I described them honestly in the book, how I came to this point. For example? Look, the biggest moment for me, I've been uneasy since I was a little kid. I remember my mother <laughs> saying things like, the journey is more important than the destination. Something uh, It's on greeting cards. I, well, right. What was that supposed to mean? I thought the purpose of doing something was to get to get to the end. And how could the purpose be something else? And I was just confused by that. I heard people say it. I just didn't know what to make of it. I sort of suppressed it until I could draw it out later and, and put it into a larger framework. When I was in graduate school, I was studying economics at the University of Chicago in the PhD program in the early 1980s, which was a wonderful time and place to be there. It was, it was really a lucky stroke for me that I landed. Milton Friedman was there. He had just left, but uh, but people like Gary Becker, and I was a student of Jim Heckman and Robert Lucas and Robert Fogel and George Stigler. It was really exciting. We felt that you know we had the world figured out, that all we had to assume <laughs> is that people have stable preferences, pursued optimizing behavior, and markets are in equilibrium, and then... You make a theory, you hold it up to data, and the, the world will reveal its hidden order to you uh, if you just try hard sure. enough. But you know, at the same time, here we are as graduate students. It's freezing cold. Remember, my apartment was so full of roaches, there was no point in even trying to kill them all. And we worked all the time. And here we are talking about uh, modeling the household where people go to work and they sacrifice some leisure in order to get money to to get goods. And it didn't, there was kind of a way it didn't, didn't jive with our own lives. It was in the, in the, in the back of my mind. And it wasn't some sort of bias that we had fallen into to the overwork bias or the salience bias, the thing that's right in front of us. We pay too much attention to it. We liked it and we, we liked that kind of work and that it was hard and it was a challenge that we undertook. So anyway, that was lurking in the back of my mind. I didn't have any better ideas. So I left graduate school thinking, okay, rational choice. And maybe some of these biases come into play from time to time. Although at the time, and even to this day, I think when the stakes are high enough, I think people are pretty smart. But anyway, I, I don't want to take an extreme view and say that they're, they're meaningless. Is this a shortfall of the utility function? Because, you know, you talked about utility before and for non-economist mm -hmm. listeners, Utility is, shall we describe it, as the good that one gets in return or an effort or an investment. Exactly. Let me come back to that in just a second. Just continue to on to my epiphany moment. I, I went to work at a bank, Japanese bank, which I loved. As I saw all around me, people would you know, be hard-headed. They would stick to their beliefs in a way that didn't seem to fit with the rational model. Sometimes people would do favors for people that just didn't make any sense. They just, they just did it because you know, random bursts of altruism. And the one that, that hit me the most was in the end of the year 2000, my bank merged with two other Japanese banks, and uh, I, was, I was fired yeah. uh, because <laughs> <laughs> I tried to think of a good euphemism for that. But, you were made redundant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my bank lost in a political battle, and, um, and yeah. it happens. So anyway, I went home. And I'd been working in banking for a while, so I, I was able to still live comfortably at that time. I was a while ago. And I thought, okay, great. Now I have all this leisure time, and I'll enjoy this utility as my training would tell me would be coming. So, you know, I'd get up in the morning, lived in New York, and I would help my wife make breakfast for the children, send them off to school. They were young teenagers. And then... I'd go run around the reservoir, read the New York Times, and it's 9 a.m. Sounds like a pretty good morning so far. That's fine, but then what do you do with the rest of the day? Maybe you have more imagination than I do, but the day would stretch out. And yeah, I would find things to do, but I just felt that I was missing the camaraderie, the challenges, the direction, the feeling that I was doing 
important things or exciting things. And it wasn't fun every moment at the bank. Of course not. But uh, problems would build up. You'd deal with them and try to move on. And all of that was lost to me and, and all at once. And I was, I was perplexed by it. And as I mentioned in the book, I took my daughter to the Bronx Zoo and my ample leisure time. I watched the zookeeper feeding fish to the tigers, but they encased the fish in ice. So the tiger would have to work for it before it could have mm. its have its lunch. And I think, okay, that, that's me. I mean, I, I get and toss these fish and, you know, it's an enviable situation in many ways, but I, I need to have some, so I like that tiger without the ice. And I just, things were the challenges that I was used to trying to cope with and overcome and the adventure of of working with my colleagues and trying to, to get ahead for the bank and myself and the world and provide for my family every day. All that was gone. And I thought, you know, there's no way to cram that into the model. Well, first of all, your story is the genesis of this podcast. I left Facebook after having had a very good outcome of the IPO, essentially. And I found myself retired at 42 and bored out of my skull. Missing the camaraderie, number one, from work, missing the sense of purpose, missing not necessarily the paycheck for itself, but for the paycheck for what it represented. Exactly. You know, so, so we were in the same boat. I was 40 when this happened to me. And when I went to work teaching at Columbia, of course, I wanted, they paid me. And I, I didn't negotiate for the highest possible salary like I was back at the bank, but I still wanted to get paid a fair wage. At those moments, it started to occur to me that, to paraphrase, another moment was when I read Notes from the Underground. And Dostoevsky talked about what he called the tricky prophet. He said, and that's the whole bane of it, that just doesn't fit into the list. When he said the mm -hmm. list, he meant kind of a, the early version of a utility function. He was talking about Jeremy Bentham's uh, philosophic calculus, where you have 14 basic pleasures and 12 basic pains, and you try to get as much of the pleasures and as little of the pains multiplied by their duration and then multiplied by the intensity. Right. Okay, he said it's easy enough to, to try to stick it into the list, but the tricky prophet, as he called it, is will, wanting to act on the world, wanting to be a genuine human agent. And if will... If acting out of your free will was just another preference that you could maximize and you're just passively choosing what's best, then then it's not will anymore. You're just back to being a passive agent again. At that point, I recognize there are just some things, as Dostoevsky said, that don't fit into the list of utility function, that stand aside. And therefore, we can't analyze them as if they were better. So, and that's what I mean by the utility function might not just be capturing it because when you're a graduate student at the University of Chicago, when you're a Navy SEAL, you get some utility, non-monetary utility from your association with that group. You get some utility from the experience of going through it and surviving it. Both have high dropout rates. So why can't you just change the utility function to represent that utility that just isn't money? That's the question. And that's the challenge that I faced from colleagues in the profession. I sent the book to a economics professor, an early draft of it. And he said, this is, I suppose you can't use profanity on this podcast, but, <laughs> but, he, but he said, this, it's, it, it's not correct. Okay. He said, because you want adventure, you care about mm -hmm. uh, sticking to your beliefs, just stick a belief adjustment cost into the utility function. It's another thing that we care about. And, you know, it, it hurts right. to change our beliefs. So we keep our identity. If a challenge is a zero chance of working, we don't like it. If it's a hundred percent chance, we don't like it. So we, something in the middle and we can just maximize that along with all the others. And so it's up to me to show that this is fundamentally different, that this is a different realm. And there are many examples that I use in the book. I break it down into three realms. Time, where we are a sporting person, a homo ludens rather than homo economist. Laying out what we do at different moments in time is not the way that we engage with it, that it can only deal with that we get caught up in the flow. The second- Sorry to interrupt, but the homo ludens is man at play, is that correct? Yeah. And then the other one is the working- Which is the economic man, the man who fits into- Okay. Th thank you for that who fits into um, the economic models. 
but sometimes we're caught up in the spirit of an adventure that makes no rational sense. And that actually trying to squeeze different, uh, if we lay out different uh, arrangements of how we're going to conduct ourselves through time, we're going to generally want to change our mind, that the immediate future is going to look different from when it's approaching, when it's right up front, than when it's in the distance. And that's not because we have weakness of the will or some pathological relationship with time. It's just the nature of being a human being. Let me give you one example that was very persuasive that I thought actually helped crack the nut for this this economist that I was battling with. Take the Good Samaritan from the biblical story. Sure. He's walking along the road. He sees a man beaten and robbed. He stops to see if the man is okay, get him on his feet. That's normal. It's perfectly rational. Uh, He cares about other people. He's observing social norms as a cost for him to break the social norms and the values that he holds. But this particular man, he takes him to the inn, then he pays the innkeeper to look after him for a time. Now, why lavish all that attention on just one person? The kind of extravagance isn't rational. He should, if he wants to help humankind in some coherent way, he should spread it around a little bit. There'll be Economists would say diminishing marginal utility to helping that that one person. Now, do we say that the good Samaritan is irrational, that he's he's caught up in some bias? I don't think we have to resort to that. I think we can say that, okay, we can respect what he did, maybe admire it, and we can't call it rational because he should spread it around if he wants to be rational, but I, I think it would be odd to call it irrational. It's something else. It's another kind of thing. Unrational. For itself. Non-rational. <laughs> right. So altruism seemed to be a really interesting lens through which to view your theory. So let's walk through some of those examples. Now, I've had on here Will McCaskill, who's a University of Oxford professor who's championed effective altruism. And in two weeks, Peter Singer from Princeton University, whom you mentioned here, who advocates giving away a lot of our income to help those in the most need in the developing world. He'll be a guest in two weeks. So this is this is relevant to the program. So you, you discuss different reasons why people do altruistic acts. Break those down for us. Look, I think altruism doesn't have to be just one thing. It can be, I mean, life is complicated and I think we can organize it and sort it and try to understand it, but I don't think we have to find one one underlying explanation that covers everything. So I have a kind of a taxonomy of altruism. And the first the first <laughs> one is just you could call it selfish altruism, doing favors for someone in expectation of a future favor or uh, mm-hmm. behaving a certain way in order to burnish your reputation, which is like dealing with lots of people over time, but linking them together through this mechanism of a reputation. And the word selfish doesn't sound nice, but it's perfectly natural. It doesn't mean it has to be wicked or sinister. And you know, some people will claim that all altruism is that way, which I think is quite indefensible to take such a cynical view. As I mentioned earlier, sometimes just being well-mannered is part of hold the door for somebody when there was a stranger and I think that's also rational. If you're in a big hurry, you may not hold the door under mm-hmm. marginal circumstances. And then, so that's at one end of the spectrum when our concern for another one is at a very low level of care. And then at the opposite, we also can arrive at something that I would also think is rational. Where we care very deeply about someone. The traditional example in the back at the University of Chicago is a a mother, her child, where the child's utility is one of the inputs into the mother's utility. So then the mother behaves in a way that just will transfer from herself to the child in a way that best gratifies her. And she cares about, she doesn't sacrifice wholly for the child. She does it up to the point where the, the benefit to the child multiplied by the marginal benefit of the child's welfare into her welfare equals the next best use of of her resources. I've never heard the mother-child relationship put so lovingly. <laughs> <laughs> that leads to the to, to so the sweet. economics of fertility. <laughs> where you yes. have, there's also a paper, a famous paper called The Trade-Off Between Quality and Quantity of Children. <laughs> I'm one of six, so I, I want to read that. 
anyway, it gets a powerful method for understanding how a household can behave. It can also cause the child can be a bad child and not care about anyone but still mm-hmm. behave in an optimal way on behalf of the household. Because if the child does something that transfers $1 to him and takes $2 away from his sister or from the household, the household becomes poor. And the benevolent member of the household, seeing this, will transfer away from the wicked child to the others who have lost out, not as a punishment, but just because she's now has less uh, less income and consumes less of everything, including the well-being of the bad child. That's neither here nor there as far as I'm concerned. Okay, so you can care about other people or things or animals. You can even care about everybody, you care about the whole world. It's an admirable way that some people see life. I mean, I think it's quite rare that someone would be an effective altruist, and then there are extreme effective altruists who will liken every luxury that they consume, they'll see it as taking the mosquito net away from a child in a developing <laughs> country. But as they're making that calculation, their care, their deep care about everybody is, uh, I think, lends itself to rational choice. They just have a very uh, unusual and noble utility function. But that's a different function than somebody that gives away to things that each incremental dollar maybe doesn't do as much good in the world, sure. but they're just doing it because it pulls on a certain heartstring. Sure. That but they there's have. no accounting for tastes, as they say. This is just the taste and the preferences that these people have. And I think we can see them, you know, rational choice economics doesn't mean that we're unattractively materialistic. The things that we care about can be the well-being of others. We can have an intense concern about the well-being of others as uh, effective altruists or extreme effective altruists have. And that could be extended to animals or to the environment. But I think there's some other cases that just can't be crammed into the utility function. And the the Good Samaritan is an example. I call it mercy, which is a gesture that stands for itself. Let's say that you're riding the subway. Some people will hold the door for a passenger who's trying to scramble on. And they look at this one person, and they will save them five minutes till they wait to the next train. They might cost uh, 300 people 10 seconds as a result of that. And rage, which has negative utility. There's that too. But uh, I think if you get enraged for 10 seconds, they have bigger problems, but... Rational people see that and they, uh, well, I'll speak for myself. As a sometimes rational person, I see that the inconsideration of the other person imposes a greater cost than just those 10 seconds. I used to be like that. I used to think that this person was confused. They're being considerate to one person, but inconsiderate to everyone. And since everyone is, they don't know any of them and they're all the same. I could see holding the door for your friend, but uh, I mean, that would be, that would be normal. But uh, since everyone's a stranger, why, why privilege this one stranger over all the others? And I guess the traditional argument would be that this person is subject to a bias that they overweight the the item right in front of them but right now i don't do it myself but i have made peace with the idea that someone wants to engage in an occasional merciful gesture that's the way they see it and they're not making a calculation it's not for me but i no longer pass judgment on it you know there's an example i use in the in the beginning of the book these gestures they don't have to be uh grandiose like the Good Samaritan, but they can be, you know, be quite simple. In the the movie, The Palm Beach Story, it's not that great a movie, but there's one really good scene where this guy who's uh, this rich sausage magnet called the Weenie King runs into a penniless Claudette Colbert, and she reminds him of himself when he was young, so he takes his money roll, and he peels off $700, and he says, so long. Kind of, kind of funny right. the way he does it. That's not... He has he's no no agenda. It's not rational. She's hardly the most deserving person of his for his largesse, but he just feels like doing it. And I think that there are long lists of things like that uh, are neither rational nor nor rational that that we would call mercy, and its counterpart is spite. And then there's one more element that I I think needs to go into our taxonomy. This would be represented by the example of a woman who sees her husband fall into the river. 
and she's trying to decide whether to jump to say, to try to say, <laughs> don't think too yeah. long, honey. Well, does the woman say, what is the present value of services and benefits I expect to get from my husband, including companionship and income and the like? Okay. Calculate that. Multiply that by the chance that she's going to save him minus the chance he'll save himself without her help. And then from that, deduct the probability she'll drown multiplied by the value she attributes to her own life. That's a lot of math to do in a short yeah, period but of time. People don't do math in short time when the, when the stakes are high, but I don't think that's the way she does it. I think that to use the uh, phrase of the philosopher Bernard Williams, anything more than this is her husband who she loves would be one thought too many. That we have all these different things that we care about, that we can rank, that we maximize, that go into the utility function. But that whole schema, that whole framework is smaller than the fact that she loves her husband. She may not even care about him in the sense that we were just talking about. She might make him miserable. She might have made him miserable before she jumped and nag him and run an ineffective household and he may not care about her and may go back to doing this after she saves him. That just shows that the two things can be logically separate. But still, when the time comes, she may jump to save him. And I think that also needs the the one thought too many kind of altruism that's just bigger than everything else also needs to be considered separately. Well, you talk a lot about instinct and go into depth on beliefs. And this is something that seemed very relevant given our current political situation. And this is not a political show, but we do see a world that is seemingly more polarized than ever. And you talk about how people are very reluctant or resistant to changing their beliefs despite the introduction of new evidence to the contrary of their beliefs. You know, the great economist John Maynard Keynes said, when the facts change, I change my opinions. What do you do, sir? That was a nice piece of rhetoric. There's a lot of research. He actually probably did say that. Uh, there's things that are falsely attributed to him, but he apparently really did say this. It's a nice piece of rhetoric, but he kept coherent views his whole life, just like everybody else. I think that our commitments to our beliefs that constitute our identity are not always up for sale. In the framework of the American pragmatist Charles Sanders Peirce, he said we hold beliefs for four different reasons. They fit with our other beliefs an authority that we acknowledge told us to believe them, or, and this is my favorite, it's agreeable to reason. It's the style of thing that we like to believe. These days, that may be the mm -hmm. big one. And then the fourth is, this new belief fits with the data in the world, with the facts that we observe. And sometimes we talk and argue as if the fourth one is the only one that matters. But uh, of course, people right. are going to tend to see things through the lens of those of the first three. And robots might change their views on a dime, but why would a person change their beliefs, which could even change themselves and change their preferences in some unknown way? So why change your belief to gratify the new person that you might become after you've changed the belief? It's some degree of stubbornness, of resilience, of commitment to uh, the beliefs that you formed that fit with each other, that fit with your experience, that you can remember, that people expect from you, isn't an irrationality. It would only be an irrationality if the only thing we wanted to do was to maximize some fixed preferences that were dictated to us or independent of those beliefs. So I think the hearty stick-to-itness of your beliefs is, is natural, and we shouldn't beat ourselves up if they're not always up for grabs. Often people see it as a virtue that their beliefs are not up for grabs. Yeah, I don't see it as a virtue either. <laughs> but, uh, I, just, <laughs> I see it as something that's, uh, I'm not passing judgment on it. I mean, beliefs about whether certain factual things are true or not. I, I don't mean principles uh, or values, which are, which are different. Sure. You talk about positive psychology and happiness research, which tells yeah. us that we are happier with income growth and relative income. Do you see a flaw in that conclusion or methodology? You know, Paul, I'm going to give you a conventional economist view of that, which may not jive with what a lot of people in this who are engaged in happiness research are going to think. You know, when someone asks me how happy I am, I have to ask compared to what? Okay, Compared to how I used to be, or compared to how I imagine other people are, although I can't be them and be myself at the same time and make that comparison. So that alone 
would account for the two main findings in happiness research, habituation, which suggests that the rate of growth of income is more important than the level right. after a certain threshold, or rivalry. So having more than the other people around you is what's important. But that may not tell us anything about human nature or about ourselves. And I think another inconvenient fact for them is that Moldova and Somalia report to be about as happy as South Korea, Italy, and Hong Kong, where the first two countries live under objectively very difficult, miserable physical conditions, and the other three countries are rich. And Japan also scores very poorly on self-reported happiness, even though it's a rich and prosperous country. So it leads me to think that this may tell us more about the way that the cultural norms for answering questions about how happy you are. That's not to say, you know, that some, you know, maybe if people have some idea about their natures and they can be asked a lot of questions, that can be compiled and we can learn things from that. So sort of self-realization can become a group project where <laughs> you, you learn from the data that other people collect. Yeah, well, you know, a, a commute is, short commute is really the thing that will lead to a good life. And I know some people, some people who've been on the show will say that what's important is that you have a lot of leisure time and that you spend time with your family. I mean, I think that's, I, I love my children and my wife and so forth, but you know, I don't need to stare and stare at them all day. They don't want to, they don't want me to say, look at them all day. We, we do, we do things together up, up to a certain amount. And I don't think I would be happier if I took that advice. When I left my job and I was at home all the time, I, I learned that there was an optimal amount of time to spend with your children. And that is under a hundred percent. You know, I mean, we all need different aspects of our lives to feel complete. I'm not sure balance means 100% at work or 100% at home, you know? No, I think that's a personal decision. I think the people who, I mean, I I work a lot. I work all the time, and but I like my work and I like teaching. I like my work in finance and I like the people I work with. I like my students. I mean, not, not every minute, but uh, I'd rather be doing that than going home and <laughs> watching sports on TV or whatever. Right. Presumably, that is a, a decision at your discretion that you have an hour to choose what to do with, and you would prefer to go to the office as opposed to go home and watch the Knicks, Lou. Well, definitely not the Knicks right now. <laughs> My goodness. Remind us how you divide your time as a professional. I have two full-time jobs. A full-time job as a teacher at Columbia. I teach economics and finance at Columbia School of International Public Affairs. And then at the same time that I went to work at Columbia in 2001, with partners in New York and London, we started a investment management firm, you could call it a hedge fund, that we've grown over 17 years now. So um, that's a full-time job also. So they're both good jobs, so I'm not complaining. Yeah, no, they sound like great jobs. How many hours a week do you work, or do you even bother counting that? I couldn't count them, but, and also I worked on the book. I've been working on the book. I was gonna say, you're an author also, right? <laughs> so and Yeah, but they all kind of fit together, and. You know, I'm so lucky to have been able to write this book. I have a really tolerant editor who stuck with me for 10 years. It was actually his idea mm. to write the book. He approached me and had read a paper that I'd written. And he said, first time I met him, he really had the idea. He's the editorial director of Yale University Press now. But he said, okay, there's rational choice. There's behavioral bias. And then there's this third thing, acting on the world as Seth calls it. And I think that's a book. So right. that was in 2009. Uh, the, Pretty cool editor. Yeah, and it was due in <laughs> July of 14. Congratulations on missing the deadline by several years. Well, I wanted to ask you about this because, you know, certainly writing this book is not a profit-maximizing use of your time. Not that I don't hope it's wildly successful, yeah. but this has got to be the embodiment of a for-itself decision. Yeah, uh, wherever fine books are sold. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, this, I will say, uh, whether, whether people like the book or not, whether they find it useful or not, um, to, to use a phrase of Nietzsche, this book was written in blood. Uh, the, yes. it, over a very long period of time, a lot of struggle for me with the ideas. I feel more, more at ease now that I've written it. And I feel it makes me 
a better investor and more clear on types of actions and, and how people communicate within complex organizations, how they transmit knowledge that's intensely personal. And I think it's permeated within my firm. It's something you know that, that I interact with my partners here. It sounds to me like it's made you a more patient human being. You're giving people the benefit of the doubt more than people that haven't thought about this kind of thing. Mm, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm sure not everybody would agree with you on that, but well, but, I don't know. Uh, sounds, if you're sitting there giving the guy who holds the subway door the benefit of the doubt, you're a more charitable New Yorker than the average guy. Look, it has made me see this other realm that I just was frustrated by. You know, somebody might pursue a, a speaking of basketball. Okay, how many people want to become teenagers want to become basketball players. How many are actually going to become basketball players? Probably zero. As long as that doesn't interfere with the other things that they want to do in their lives, these quixotic struggles, which are very unlikely to give them the result that they're seeking, that's how most, most of life is. And a lot of, the, a lot of meaning is derived from undertaking these, these struggles or, or games that you may not win in any objective way. I become more understanding of those kinds of things. So, yeah, I think the clarity, I like to think it, it, has, it has made me that way. I'll take the compliment, sure. But it also has practical applications in your investing work. For example, you can see the difference between the decision-making frameworks of institutional investors versus individual investors. Yeah, the kind of knowledge and decision-making where we have some chance of making money it has to come in my strongly held view, with an encounter with the unknown and unknowable, things that are only happening once that are different from, that are fundamentally different from the things that have happened before them. And because if, if they were the same, they would have been arbitraged away by now. Right. Uh, so while we use mathematics and we're interested in looking at data, in the end, where we have a chance of beating the market in the way that we try to beat it, derives from judgment, from personal knowledge, from the ability to say, well, yeah, this looks similar from things that have failed before, but this time is different. And if you can't say this time is different, then you might as well be replaced by an algorithm. And we're clear on that with our investors. Our investors are large institutions. They're public pension plans uh, in the United States and Canada and the UK. So they have their governance structures, and they can't just say, "Well, this this guy he he wears glasses, he looks like he's smart, and he wants to apply his judgment right, here." Right. So they can need a lot more than that, and yet they have to be able to say, "Yes, this and not that," and in a way that they can't always be quantified. And have you read Malcolm Gladwell's new book, "Talking to Strangers"? By any uh, no, no, I haven't. Now, in fairness, Malcolm Gladwell doesn't run a successful fund or any fund that I know of. But, you know, you say at one point in the book that a very successful venture capitalist has an advantage because she can look the entrepreneur in the eye. Mm -hmm. According to Malcolm Gladwell, she'd be better off running her impression through some artificial intelligence that could make a better decision than human beings. Good luck with that. Uh <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's that first of all, if you tried it, everybody would game it, and, right. and you would find that that was just it's like putting a big target on your back, and everybody would figure out your algorithm, and you would do the things that nobody else wanted to do, and you would soon learn why. It would be a very expensive lesson, and I think that the kind of personal knowledge of time and place that Hayek attributed to the the man on the spot that's not easily abstracted and transmitted to other people, although it can be partially transmitted, but, but not altogether. It requires a kind of leap out of character that the algorithm is never going to be able to do. I think uh, traders and investors are one of the last jobs that machines, robots are going to replace. I mean, not to say there is some quantitative traders that are ahead of everybody else. And I, I don't deny that, at least for a time, they can do it. But of course, they can't last forever. And some human is going to have to come and figure out what to do next. Yeah. After reading it, a lot of what you're saying seems relatively intuitive. Why is there so little literature or discussion about this kind of decision-making framework? You know, I think 
this is hard to see. Uh, the motives for our actions are obscure to us. We think of ourselves as rational and we talk about ourselves to others that way. When you say to someone, why did you do this? They mean, why is this optimal? Why is this good? Why is this going to get you or us what you want? But there is a, a tradition going back to Hume and Schopenhauer that will argue that reason is a slave to passion. That first we decide what we want to do, and we do it, and then we figure out the reason afterwards. And uh, you know, like a like a person who's dreaming who hears a barking dog and then weaves the dog into the narrative of the dream. And there's even some neurobiological evidence for this, uh, a topic on which I am not expert, but I've had psychologists look at my discussion of this to make sure I wasn't saying anything that would embarrass me later. Okay. And I think in the case of, you know, why do people hold false beliefs and how are they able to do that and keep it going? Well, we have a talent for dismissing the opinions of experts uh, <laughs> or anybody else who disagrees with us and uh, uh, just convincing ourselves that we're right. It's undeniable. And when it comes to these merciful gestures, we might, you know, appeal to some westernized notion of karma or some uh, divine scorekeeper who takes an interest in human events that allows us to make it through without saying that, well, maybe this this wasn't for a purpose. It was just for itself. And I think that was why not a single one of these ideas I'm claiming to have invented this out of whole cloth. People have thought about these things before. But uh, my job here is to assemble it and to try to show where purposeful choice, where we're trying to get what we want, ends, and the for itself world begins, although the borderline is not a straight line. Sometimes things are bits of both. And then say a few words about why that's not easy for us to see. And how can being aware of that as individuals help us make better decisions? For me, where it helps me make better decisions is in uh, is investing, reasons that we talked about. It can make us more at ease make us not beat ourselves up over some of the decisions that might seem to be irrational. Take procrastination as an example. I do it, most people do. And, you know, I feel that, you know, maybe I have some disorder and I need, I, I didn't do a lot of it, but I do it sometimes. And I don't think it necessarily harnesses these, this good stress that allows you to be more productive, not in my case, but it does make things more fun when you're up against a deadline. And if things are, you know, life is partly a, a sport or a game, why, why not? Why not just uh, let it go to the end and then rush and see and not, and not have, to, have to feel bad about it? Um, or not to feel that any time you deviate from something that fits into rational choice, that you have to figure out which of those 200 biases you've, uh, you've been caught up in and then, and then fix your ways. So to me, that kind of, it's, it's, been, it's been therapeutic that way. And I also find that to think of ourselves as these creatures that are only acting to try to get what we want and to do the best that we can to maximize our preferences leads to a, what Keynes called in a, a footnote in, a, in an autobiographical essay right at the end of his life, a thinness and superficiality not only of judgment, but of feeling. But until we can break break free from the grip of rational choice without renouncing it, because it is so powerful, um, that, that to me was the, the prize at the end for me personally. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Richard Robb, author of the new book, Willful, How We Choose What We Do. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Paul. All right. So that was Richard Robb, economics professor at Columbia University and CEO of Christofferson Robb & Company, New York-based investment management firm. Hey, folks, if you like what we're doing here at Crazy Money, you sure would appreciate it if you would rate and review this fine podcast on whatever podcast app or platform you're using to listen to it. Those ratings and reviews help people find it, help them understand what we're all about, and we'll get them interested so that uh, we can grow this audience and uh, Frankly, I'd like to spread out the fixed costs of producing this podcast over a much larger audience. So why don't you do that? Share it with some friends too. 
take that episode from last week, the one I had with my wife, and uh, send it to three people that you think would find it to be hilarious, interesting, or at least a spectacle uh, vulnerability that anybody with common sense wouldn't have participated in. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to my good friend, Mr. Eric Porras. Eric Porras, my old friend, welcome to Crazy Money. Paul, thank you so much for having me. Eric, you just started a company called Meeting Science. How can science help us with meetings? You know, it's a great question, Paul. So I've got a question for you, Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe this will help given that this is the Crazy Money podcast. Sure. Um, What is our most precious commodity? Uh, Wi-Fi. (laughs) <laughs> time Possibly. time is our most precious commodity, Eric. Time. It, it is. And so th- there really is no more precious commodity than our time. Once we spend it, we don't get it back. And so when you think about your time in a day working in a corporate environment, other than sleep, the second highest tax on our time is Real Housewives meetings. of Atlanta. Uh, okay, for you, possibly given that you have this different qualitative lifestyle choice that you've made. Yes. But beyond that, uh, the second highest tax on our time are our meetings. And, and in fact, meetings represent the highest company payroll expense in time, uh, with the average person spending 30% of their week in meetings. Uh, and actually, cost is more like 42% for a company, given that the more senior you are, the more meetings you attend, the more meetings you attend, the more you're costing in organization. And so when I saw this as a challenge that I faced, both in all the companies that I've been a part of, companies I founded before, large companies, small companies, companies as large as Disney to as small as an agency I started in 2002, it all comes down to the same thing, which is we don't do a great job with managing uh, or respecting the time of people we host meetings for. Why do meetings suck so bad? Well, they suck so bad because they generally lack a clarity of purpose, a means to achieve them. They take too long. Uh, or they don't have the right people in the room. Uh, there are technical problems. There are no decisions that are made. There are agendas that are stale. So the list of challenges to what I call meeting nirvana goes on and on. And and meetings are a function to, a, I think, a large degree of inertia. We create a weekly status meeting for X or Y. We create an agenda that doesn't change. And then they just happen because they happen. When in fact, and other people have done this research, Meetings themselves, the cost of meetings in the United States per year is about $1.4 trillion. It costs, we spend $1.4 trillion or greater than the GDP of Australia just on meeting time alone. So how can meeting science help people attend and conduct better meetings? Well, great, great question. So our software, what we're trying to do is we're trying to fundamentally help millions of people increase meeting quality and reduce meeting quantity. And the way we do that is by helping optimize uh, companies' meeting performance through a combination of active and passive meeting analytics, nudges, and then uh, in the in a future state, in a hopefully near future state, a, a healthy dose of, of AI to provide coaching. So, so what does that mean for active and passive meeting analytics? Well, just looking at your calendar alone, Uh, Without any other input from you, it's very easy to see who are the what I'll call meeting vultures and vipers in an an organization. What do those Uh, mean? That means people who generally uh, schedule more time than perhaps they should. Is that the vulture Uh, or the viper? That would actually be both. Uh, Uh There are two different ways to describe the same person or the type of person. And then on the active analytics side, uh, we've created uh, qualitative feedback mechanisms such that when you end every meeting, there's a way to provide feedback. Now, the feedback is not just about, hey, was that meeting great or bad? But it's also about why was that meeting great or bad? So did that meeting have a clear purpose? Uh, Did it start on time? Was the organizer prepared? Did we actually set out to achieve something and, and achieve it in that meeting? And likewise, while when meetings are terrible, why? Why are meetings terrible? Well, the organizer wasn't prepared. Uh, it lacked a purpose. It lacked a defined next steps. It started late. It ended late. And oh, by the way, uh, there were technical problems. So I'll just give you one small example. So the ability to look at these kinds of analytics 
help us be able to say that, hey, you know what, Paul, if you were still at Facebook and you were running a meeting with 10 or 15 people, which again, and, and even that number is too much, you know, there, there's an optimal number of people that should be in each type of meeting. We might be able to tell you ahead of time, hey, Paul, you know what? 47% of the people in that meeting are coming from another one and 76% of them are going to another meeting right after yours. So they're already going to be challenged by the ability to actually stay focused in your meeting. So what do you need to do as an organizer? Well, guess what? You can either choose to have a meeting at a different time or you need to shorten the meeting that you do have to make it the most valuable. There's a psychological uh, concept called Parkinson's law and Parkinson's law says that work expands to fill the time available. So you know what? I don't know. Maybe you've had this experience. I certainly know that I have that if you're in a meeting that's going to last an hour, that's an hour's on the calendar, people find a way to spend that time. Oh, hey, guess what? That meeting wasn't long enough. Let's make it an hour and a half. And guess what? Work expands at that time. Right. So the proposition that we're providing is to be able to try and truncate that time to make it the truly valuable for the people that are that are in that room, start on time, end on time, with an organizer prepared, with the right people in the room, there to either make decisions or to have a discussion uh, and not crush people with the the burdensome weight of too many meetings taking too much time. And so how can the people listening to this uh, interview right now, how can they participate in meeting science or find out more? Thank you for asking, Paul. So uh, we have a beta application available now. I'm delighted to say that uh, we were just approved by Google so that we're at an authentic application. Anyone listening to this podcast can go to meetingscience.io meeting inputs and outputs uh, to take a look at what we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish and uh, and can sign up for sign up for the beta. And are you seeking investors by any chance, Eric? By chance, the, it, this wouldn't be a crazy money podcast if I didn't have a crazy request. And, and the answer is yes, uh, I, I am seeking investors as well. I have a small seed round uh, that I have some great folks who've already backed it and believe in the mission. But in terms of being able to build out a team over the next 15 months. Uh, there, there's definitely a uh, definitely round open. And so if folks are interested in uh, really tackling, again, this giant $1.4 trillion problem, they can email me at eric, E-R-I-C, at meetingscience.io to learn more. Groovy. Thank you, Eric Porras from Meeting Science IO. Have a wonderful week. Thanks so much, Paul, for, for having me on and, and sharing what we're trying to do. My pleasure.